The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's go to Tesla. Welcome That's to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, yes, Matt Dillon. Well, it's a story that every business day we bring you well, interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg yeah, experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Very positive and very right on this story since day one. He's viewed it as a tech story, not a metal bending story per se, and he's been absolutely right. Dan, what was your takeaway from your time down in uh, Austin? Look, I think, Paul, with these as well as Apple events, I think investors always want more meat on the boat. You know, obviously, they laid the groundwork for what I view as a flex to muscles type of event from a scale and scope in terms of what they're doing on EVs. But you didn't have a sub-30 K vehicle introduced. I think that's still to come. But I think they laid the groundwork for it. Stock will sell off knee-jerk, and now it becomes a sort of what's the next step on this roadmap. I mean, Dan, you know that I feel like their design and vehicles are just too long in the tooth. I mean, they Matt Winkler has had his Model S for more than a decade. Wow. Which says a lot about the quality of the vehicle. Yes. Um, and I'm not debating that, but the, it's just tired, and they all look alike, except for the Cybertruck, which is, I guess, what, three years late now? So at what point does um, Elon Musk stop fooling around with Twitter and start like working on um, progress at his car company? Hey, look, I think you hit the nail on the head relative to competition increasing. And you want Tesla to come out with more models. I think they, for the first time, admitted they're going to need basically 10 models uh, for the long term. And and now it's about when do they come out? What do they look like? Look, I personally believe, based on our work, sub-30K is going to be the key from a cheaper vehicle, as well as an SUV-like Tesla. I think that's really, from a mass market, which Street's hoping to focus on. And clearly, look, Cybertruck... A year from now, you'll see cyber trucks around Manhattan. I mean, in other words, they would, delivery should be by you know, early next year, but that's not going to move the needle from a mass perspective, and that's why this is so important from sub thirty k. Well, they just need to, look. Since the Model S was introduced, the nine eleven has had four model changes. <laughs> okay, and the, the today's Model S doesn't look any different than than it did great, 10 years though. ago. It still looks great, I, I think. If you th- I I I'm I not a car guy, that, so I was never that into it, but okay. I just feel like they need to, you know, if Mercedes or if BMW hadn't changed their design language in over a decade, it would be a real problem. Why is it okay for this company? I think it's because when you think about electric vehicles, right now it's still Tesla's world, everyone else paying rent in terms of the EV space. They know there's an opportunity, let's call it 3 million vehicles in terms of out of the gate. They, they just hit their 4 millionth in terms of delivery. So they've really obviously crushed in terms of this initial sort of you know, growth area, but now it's the next phase of the growth story. And, and I think 
it's all about cost. It's all about efficiencies. They could lower by 40%, 50% in terms of what they're talking about. Then all of a sudden you start to have a 25, 28K Tesla out there. Hey, Dan, you know, one of the most read stories on the terminal today is about Elon Musk, not surprisingly, but it's about his use of his private plane, and he's flown the most among some of the richest billionaires, and that's and it's really spiked up after he bought Twitter, but it just goes to the point, he's got so many different companies and so many different businesses, and I'm wondering, in Austin, at the investor day, to what extent was that brought up or addressed by him or by investors that, hey, Elon, can you focus on where the real money is, which is Tesla? Yeah, look, I think there's definitely questions around that and nothing on Twitter. I, I think that's something that started to go more into the background, but you're starting to see more, you know, what I'd say, Ben strength. You know, the, Tom Zhu and some others are starting to come up in terms of the Tesla organization. I, I believe he's been able to balance it well, but no doubt you're starting to see, you know, a must has pay more and more attention to some of these next steps with Tesla, with SpaceX. And I think that continues to be a sore subject for investors for, you know, what I view as probably one of the most fouled individual in the world. What do you think about, uh, I, just, I saw Lucid on the road yesterday, barely see any of those. Yeah. Uh, I saw Rivian um, parked by the Scarsdale train station. They look sweet, but uh, they're really disappointing in terms of their ability to ramp up production. Faraday, whatever it's called, I still have never seen one of those. Polestar. Yeah, Polestar, but that's Volvo, right? So, I I mean, what do you think about these electric vehicle startups that we all had such high hopes for and everybody bet up the stock initially and now have just been a disappointment after disappointment? Are they going to come back? Are they going to survive? Look, I think it's a great comparison what we saw yesterday. I mean, Tesla flexes the muscles, has the scale. You're going to see GM doing the same thing, coming at the 313 area code along with Ford. But these startups, it is so difficult to scale and so expensive. And in a rising rate environment that's tougher and tougher, some are going to survive, some are not. And I think it also just shows the dog ate the homework excuse, like we've seen from (laughs) Rivian and others. It just doesn't work in this market where the dream, quote-unquote, are story stocks. Or no longer. I thought R.J. Scaringe was going to kill it. He took like a decade to bring out the truck. And now, I mean, 50000 is all they're going to make in 2023? If I ordered one of those and I'm on a two-year waiting list that just went to three years, I'm going to be super disappointed. I mean, it has been up there from a disappointment with Rivian in terms of the gate, given R.J. and you know everything we saw from him pre-IPO, up there with you know, maybe Zach Wilson and some other disappointments. It's been very, very frustrating for investors. Hey, Dan, just real quick, 30 seconds. Your time in Austin, what's the number one question you heard from institutional investors? Well, I think today the big focus is, okay, what does ultimately the timeline look like to get efficiencies down? And is the China growth story continuing to ramp post price cuts? Everyone's focused on price cuts. Yep. In China, what the demand story looks like. We continue to believe that that's robust, but again, haters continue to hate on Tesla. That won't change. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, Dan Ives, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Appreciate getting uh, your perspective, as always, on Tesla and on all things technology. Again, Tesla stock off about 5% here. Uh, tell you, a little bit disappointing as you read some of the research and some of the reporting, just that there wasn't more color, as Dan was suggesting, on some of the newer models. Uh, that just kind of more to come. So you kind of have to just kind of 
believe in Elon, and that's been the story for a long period of time. Dan Ice from Wedbush. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's get to our C-suite conversation. We're talking insurance. Juan Andrade, is that, did I do that right? Andrade. Andrade, Andrade, thank you. Juan Andrade, CEO of Everest. So there's the, an N, Andrade. There's not on my list, my sheet. Andra- That's just because Andrade. Eric left it out. Eric left it's it out. It's Andrade. Andrade, thank you. Okay. The most important thing, the names I care about, the New York Stock Exchange symbol, stock symbol, R-E, go. Uh, we'll get you there. And this, this is a stock that's done really well. So we want to talk to Juan here. He's in a Bloomberg. Also, in what a name. Yeah. He's in our Bloomberg and Arthur Corpus studio. All right, so this is an insurance company. Tell us about Everest. Tell us about what you do, and then we'll get into some of the, you know, the growth drivers, the challenges, that type of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely, Paul. Pleasure to be here. Look, Everest is, a, is what we call a hybrid company. We have both a reinsurance business and an insurance business. You know, we trade in, in the New York Stock Exchange, part of the S&P 500, and uh, we have done uh, exceedingly well over the last few years. As a matter of fact, I've been the CEO since January 1st of 2020. And we've grown the reinsurance business about 55% in that period of time. January 1st, 2020. That's a time to take over a business. Yeah, no, it's a a wonderful time. You must have taken off your tie and marked and unbuttoned your top button. Like, oh, I need to breathe a little bit. Yeah, well, realistically, I was uh, only out of the office for a couple of months, and then I was back all in. But it goes back to the story, right? Because I think we've done a very nice job managing the company through all of these challenges. And, you know, to what I was saying, it's not only the growth of 56 in our reinsurance business over that period of time. I'm over 60 in our primary business, but the stock price has gone up about 40% since I started in 2020. So the company has done well. So, yeah, I mean, I usually look at a comp screen, as our listeners know, um, to see how you've done over a five-year period. Uh, You've outperformed over that period, but I'll put in, um, you know, your starting date still massively outperformed not only the S&P 500, but also the financial sector. Why do you think it is that you're doing so much better than the benchmarks? 
Yeah, no, I, I, look, I think it's a few things. Number one, I think we've got a world-class team. We've put together a very clear strategy, and we have been relentless about executing against that strategy. So I think those are sort of the key elements that we have. In addition to that, we've also had a good market, you know, and that's one of the things that uh, it's important to talk about today. It's the fact that in the reinsurance market particularly, we have a one-in-a-generation type opportunity. There's a secular supply and demand imbalance that's taking place right now, and we're uniquely positioned to take advantage of that. And so all of that together, I think, is what's led to that outperformance. Uh, we're making a big deal on Bloomberg Radio and television today about the rise in interest rates, the 10-year Treasury now above 4%. How does that impact your business, a rising interest rate environment? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, by definition, because we're a reinsurance insurance company, we tend to invest in very conservative investments, mostly fixed income. So that really does translate to our portfolio yield increasing. So that's generally a good thing for us. Yeah, I mean, last year the S&P was down 20% and change. You were up 20% and change. Is that um, is, is that kind of outperformance going to stick if we have a recession? What happens to your business if we go into a serious recession? Yeah, Matt, look, we tend to be um, essentially a safe port in a recession. And the reason for that is businesses can't do their job without our products, right? You can't run a company without general liability insurance, property insurance, directors and officers liability. And particularly in the heightened risk environment that you have today, demand for our products is at an all-time high. So for us, a recession is actually an opportunity for us to continue to grow. So are there sectors of the economy, or or let's put it this way, where do you guys focus? What are some of the sectors that you guys have exposure to or want to have exposure to? Yeah, so we're very well diversified, both in reinsurance and insurance, and that's really across industries, geographies, product lines, etc. That gives us the ability to look at particular aspects of, of the economy and say, this is an area where we see a lot of opportunity and we want to play. For instance, property right now is a terrific area for us to play. Areas that we're watching more closely are credit-related credit lines, things like mortgage, surety, etc., etc., because we don't know if there's going to be a credit cycle beyond some of this. Who do you guys really compete against? Um, again, we look about the stock, Matt, and I, we always focus on stocks. You get a snapshot of how companies are doing over a period of time. Talk to us about your competition. Sure. It, it really does vary whether it's reinsurance or insurance. On the reinsurance side, we compete against Munich Re, Swiss Re, Hanover Re, and then some of the other Bermuda companies, some of the smaller ones. On the primary side, we're competing against Chubb, AIG, AXA, Allianz, Zurich. Those are some of the, the competitors. How come those the Re's are all German-speaking? Swiss Re, <laughs> Munich Re, Hanover Re, those are all a very small part of the middle of Europe. Uh, wh- why is reinsurance so concentrated there? Yeah, I think uh, historically a lot of the large global reinsurers did come out of the continent of Europe, but they're worldwide, right? Their home offices may be in in Munich or or Zurich, but they're really worldwide players. But I think a lot of it was just their history and a lot of opportunity in the continent of Europe when they first started. So so what do you do? Why are we not interviewing him in Bermuda? I don't, we should. That was a Are you actually headquartered in Bermuda? You literally live in Bermuda? No. I, I go back and forth to Bermuda. Our company is headquartered in Bermuda. Yes. Wow. I, I, and I we was, know a guy in Bermuda. I, I, <laughs> there's a, and he went to Johns Hopkins as yes, well. Yes. You got right. your master's at Johns Hopkins, right? I, in international I did. We could studies. tie this all in. I so know. do you focus your business? I, I, because you studied international studies. You've been uh, recognized by Latino Leaders Magazine for your um, contributions. Uh, I, I, you had Latin American studies also as part of your master's. Do you focus on a global business, or is your business really focused in the U.S.? No, our, our business is totally global. So if I think about it from the reinsurance side,
worldwide. I have customers in 115 countries around the world. That makes sense. We are the seventh largest reinsurer in the world. So wow. we, we play a significant role in all of that. On the primary side, we're in the middle of expanding our business from North America also into other countries. As a matter of fact, we just opened up offices in uh, Santiago, Dusseldorf, Paris, uh, mm. Madrid, Singapore, and in this year we have additional expansion uh, to go as well. So uh, this leads to my uh, question about growth. Um, what's your plan look like? Say a five-year plan for growth from here. Are you going to do it organically? Are you? We talked to um, uh, uh, Pat Gallagher yesterday, and he's done a lot of it by buying other companies. What's it look like for Everest? Yeah, for us, it's really more of an organic build, and we have been very successful. I mean, the, the growth numbers that I quoted earlier in, in our discussion were all organic-based. And I'll give you an example. So in, in the reinsurance business, January 1st is where the majority of your renewals take place. So we secured over 50% of our portfolio on January 1 in an environment Is that a with, good number? That's a very good number. Because my analyst, Matthew Palazzola, that's his question. Ask him how the January one renewals went. Yeah, no, it's 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 a it's a very good, the over fifty percent of your portfolio being secured in this January one is a very good number because what we saw is that once in a generation opportunity I was telling you about, pricing for property catastrophe went up fifty percent in January one in the U.S. It went up forty percent internationally. So we were able to secure over fifty percent of our portfolio at much better pricing, much better terms. So that sets us up with a very good tailwind going into twenty twenty three. How much of a problem? are you know these big superstorms and are we are we really seeing more and more of them or do we just talk about it a lot i mean since katrina we haven't seen that kind of devastation in the u.s but we've had some big storms along florida we had uh, superstorm sandy here that closed the new york stock exchange for four days um is that a concern for you it, it certainly is and i think it ought to be a concern for everybody i'll, I'll give you a couple of statistics so last year in 2022 the insurance industry paid out over 140 billion in insured loss in 21, it was $130 billion in insured loss. So what we're clearly seeing is more severe storms. This is all driven by climate change, right? Seas are warming up. Warmer seas lead to more severity, higher Category 4, higher Category 5 type storms. So that creates for our industry essentially an impetus to get much better at risk selection and modeling. And frankly, that's one of the things that we've done at Everest in this period of time is reduce our exposure to natural catastrophe, which then reduces our volatility to earnings. And it goes back to the diversification point that I was making earlier. We're a well-balanced company, so we don't have to rely only on property natural catastrophe exposure. So what happens to our good friends down in Florida. Can they even get insurance? And that's where you're from, right? You grew up in Miami. I am. I'm a Florida boy. So what happens? Well, listen, Florida has gone through a very difficult period of time, particularly over the last couple of years. But the governor in the special legislative session that they just had at the end of last year have put in place some very good reforms that will curb some of the fraud, some of the litigation that basically was creating a, a capacity crunch, if you will, in the state. Now, those reforms will take some time to play out, but ultimately that bodes very well for Florida for their consumers, and for the insurance and reinsurance market. I mean, that's – and so is the state kind of for the, the last backstop in Florida? Look, I think in Florida you have a few issues. Number one, you're exposed to hurricanes because of where it is. You have a lot of people moving down there. People yep. like to live on the coast. And in addition to that, you have some of the environmental factors I just described. There's a lot of fraud, yep. and there's a lot of litigation. And that's really what the governor and the, and the legislature have really just addressed. Right. But again, that'll take a little bit of time to, uh, to show up. All right, fascinating stuff. Juan Andrade. CEO of Everest. It's a New York Stock Exchange uh, traded company. RE is a symbol like reinsurance uh, based in uh, 
Bermuda. Bermuda. And again, why are we here and not in Bermuda? We could have done this live Why isn't there. everyone based in Bermuda? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to talk energy. We do that with Greg Ebel. He's the CEO of Enbridge Energy. That trades on the New York Stock Exchange. The symbol is E, N as in Nancy, B as in boy. Uh, it's got a $78 billion market cap. The stock's uh, up about 1.2% today, kind of unchanged on the year. And this is a company that also had an investor day yesterday. It's not just Tesla, but a lot of folks are trying to get out in front of their shareholders. Greg, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, I'd love to, first of all, just tell us what Enbridge Energy does. How does it fit, is, fit into the ener- energy stream? And then tell us kind of what were your big, big points you tried to make yesterday at your investor day? Sure. I appreciate, appreciate being with you, Paul Matt. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, so the best way for your listeners probably to think through this and Bloomberg Radio to think through this is, you know, Enbridge is really like the FedEx, if you will, from an energy infrastructure perspective. And we're really trying to be that first choice for our customers for energy delivery. So we pick up, whether it's oil or it's gas or we're on the renewable side as well, we'll store it and ultimately we deliver it to those uh, users. So yesterday it was about going out to the uh, our investors and telling them how we, you know, we see four to six percent growth here over the medium term, continued growth in our dividend, which, by the way, uh, we've increased every year for 28 years. So that makes us one of those uh you know, dividend aristocrats out there, and that's a, yep. a key component in this type of environment. And it's all backed up by about $17.5 billion of pipeline projects that go throughout uh, North America and uh, wind projects and renewable projects in five G7 countries. You know, we move 25 to 30 percent of all the oil and all the gas that moves to North America today, every day, safely, reliably. So, so are there places, I just recall, um, seeing a story last month where uh, gas bills just soared in California, whereas everywhere else around the world, uh, around the country, I should say, um, they were stable or even down. Are there places that it's harder to get gas and oil to? Yeah, absolutely. So California is a good example, you know, but we uh, we have pipelines. We're the main, line pipe, the main pipeline provider for gas into New England. So New England actually pays some of the highest prices natural gas in the world if you can believe that wow put that in the context of what everything that's going on in europe and stuff and that's not because there's no supply right the supply think about the marcellus shale they'll think pennsylvania ohio it's 100 percent about infrastructure so if you're relying on infrastructure and you can't get the supply to where the demand is good old economics push that and so you've got a lot of people in new england who through no fault of their own are extremely disadvantaged in terms of what they've got to pay for uh, what they've got to pay for natural gas, you know, for many years we've been able to change that. Uh, we'd like to kind of get back at doing that. Uh, it's a challenging environment, as you know. Pipelines are, uh, can be. What are the biggest headwinds? Because you say um, a lot of people through no fault of their own, but of course yeah. we uh, can all vote. And if the big headwind is, say, a governor or a state legislature, it is kind of our own fault. Well, you hit it right on. Uh, that is, it is, when I say no fault of their own, right, obviously they're not approving pipelines or doing the regulatory side of things, and they're obviously not producing the product. So they're they're takers of the product. You know, most of our customers are utilities. So what we really need to do is to figure out some way, and this is true for renewables as, as well as pipelines. We've got to figure out a way, how do we get permitting change so that people can get the energy that they need? You know, something in the last 12 months we've probably all realized, and maybe we were just getting too happy about this and complacent, 
that there is a real energy trilemma out there of energy security, yep. affordability, and obviously sustainability. So, you know, I think we've really got to think that through. I know here in the United States, Congress has looked, as, as you probably recall, at various permitting reforms that was supposed to be part of some elements that happened uh, last right. year. It didn't. Maybe this Congress will be able to make some of those changes. And then you pointed out at the state level, if you don't get support at the state level, uh, it makes it very difficult. So, so Greg, let, let, keep, let, let, let's yeah. just go to that point here. Um, my energy analyst kind of said, hey, ask Greg about Michigan and line five. And, you know, Governor Whitmer of Michigan actually campaigned against that pipeline project when she ran for office. So just give our listeners a sense of maybe the, the puts and takes when, when you sit down with regulators, whether it's the state level or the federal level, about getting new projects approved. Yeah. And, you know, often it's a it's a situation of, you know, people's varying views on the pace of energy transition. And again, we're involved in all aspects of this, right, from the upstream to the downstream, from liquids to gas to renewables. And I think we've got a pretty good view on what that pays. So, you know, that situation line five, as you mentioned it, which is uh, really about a very small piece of uh, of, of pipeline or distance wise uh, that's uh, that's uh, goes across the, uh, the straits there. And frankly, uh, you know, it's desperately needed that that energy in places like Detroit and refineries in in uh, Ohio. And it's also tied up if, to make it even more complicated, even in international treaties. So, okay. you know, despite the commentary uh, out of the governor and the attorney general, I think this is a federal issue. It's being dealt with right at the highest levels, both of the Canadian government with the prime minister and obviously the Biden administration. So, you know, I think this is about there's there's a way to do this and there's a way to do this in a in a very uh, uh transitional manner that does not put under un, uh, un, uh, uh, fair burdens on consumers. And that's what we're trying to do. And uh, in the meantime, you know, that pipeline continues to run very safely and deliver the fuel that's needed to uh, to fuel the quality of life uh, throughout uh, Michigan and obviously over in Ohio and into Canada as well. We always say on this show, just so you know, uh, <laughs> We always call it the great state of Ohio, Greg. The great state of Ohio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, or, or the Ohio State, one of the two, right? The Ohio State University. Right. Uh, right. Pretty good season. A little disappointing against Michigan, obviously. <laughs> but not yeah. bad at all. So, Greg, what's so. The, what was the big message that you wanted to really get across at your investor day yesterday? And conversely, what maybe is the, is the number one issue for investors in your company? Well, I'd say the number one issue for investors in our company, and I think we're addressing it, is how do you get this $17.5 billion backlog of projects into service on time and on budget? And fortunately, that's spread out over you know 10 or 12 projects. So we feel very good about that. Hence our view with investors that, look, we want to be that first choice energy investment for you. And the way for us to do that is be that first choice energy delivery. And that's what we're really talking about. And you can do that in all aspects of the business at Enbridge, right? If you like utilities, we have the largest gas utility by volume in North America. If you like the pipeline side of things and on the oil side, we've got those pipelines. If you like gas pipelines and LNG, and as you know, the United States is now the largest exporter of LNG, we have that in our portfolio. And we also have renewables. We've been in the renewable business for 25 years 
So we know how to do that, whether it's solar or it's wind. And that was the message. And all that, what it's going to get you is an, a further extension of the 28 years in a row of increase in the dividend. So that's the message yep. we, were, we were actually putting out there. All right, Greg, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to uh, join us. I know you're busy there with your uh, investor, Investor Days. Greg Ebel, he's the CEO of Enbridge Energy based in Calgary, Alberta. So way out there. One of those cities I really want to get to at some point. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk a little uh, investment banking, a little Wall Street stuff. Uh, we had some investor days. We're done with earnings. We can kind of look back. Um, we can so also talk Coinbase with Shanali because yesterday she talked to Brian Armstrong. Yeah, and Brian Armstrong was not on Bloomberg Radio, which I think, you know, what's, what's up It was with that? simulcast, dude. Was it? Yeah. Oh, okay. so we went into separate. Okay. I was like, why isn't he in our radio studio? Uh, Shanali Basic, uh, Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence, Shanali Bloomberg News joins us here. So, uh, Shanali, real quick, what's the feedback you got on your discussion with our friends from Coinbase yesterday? Uh, two things here. One is that he talked about how a lot of the assets on Coinbase were associated with the CFTC. They were commodities. And of course, we know that the SEC is very concerned about certain assets being defined as securities. Okay. So that is going to be very telling about how this fight really continues to play out. But he- Gary Gensler and the SEC have said mm-hmm. that their um, staking of Ethereum is a security. Not Coinbase's. They've said Kraken staking service. Oh, okay. Right. right. And they find Kraken like 30 million bucks. Yeah. And they yeah. didn't admit or deny any wrongdoing, but that was the size of the total payment here. So, yeah. I mean, if you pay somebody $30 million, you don't have to admit or deny any wrongdoing. Yeah. Clearly, something happened there. So, really, Brian Armstrong is, you know, is trying to exude a lot of confidence here, trying to work with the regulators. You know, he wore a suit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, he did. So, I, saw that. I think um, this kind of shows you a lot about the place Coinbase is trying to take in the crypto world and try to bridge traditional finance with crypto. Hey, Allison. Uh, Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence, also on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here. You were at Goldman Sachs yesterday. What's kind of your takeaway from Goldman, from the investment banks? What's kind of the, the narrative here on the big investment banks? So I think it's still all about the economy, right? So okay. um, we wrapped up the, the fourth quarter. Uh, we've had Goldman Investor Day. It was disappointing. Goldman, I think, was was disappointing on sort of both fronts. 
um, you know, and I think we we talked about the fact that, like, to me, they're killing it in their core business, yep. right? So trading, gaining significant share, um, M&A, which is a, a lucrative business. You have all these boutiques that, you know, have popped up going after that business. They're still number one um, for for a long time. So I think that uh, the quarter started out pretty strong in terms of trading. And I have a question for you, Allison. Because if so, people are so upset about the consumer, but the reality is with rates up, do you think that what Goldman is trying to do, David Solomon is trying to do, is just say, hold on, like we can finally make money in consumer, <laughs> let us try to do that? Is that kind of what, what he's trying can to he do? Can he say one thing or the other? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think you know it, it's funny because I think what where they what they're doing is we're going to focus on the consumer in the in the, the areas that make sense, right? So the Apple Card and the GM business, we're going to focus on those areas. The balance transfer business, which you know to me never made sense for them. It's I, I don't know what the competitive advantage is of doing a strategy that came out in the '90s. It's never really been a winner, um, and does not work well in a higher rate environment. Um, so moving away from that and, and keeping the, the more profitable businesses. Um, but you know, he should have just said it like that. He should have said, you know what? This was a bad idea. Allison's we made the president. wrong decision. <laughs> we're going to move on from that. Will we it, keep a couple pieces much, of this business? Yes, but we're yeah, done. But, the consumer business is dead. Put a, it, what do you say? Put a fork in it, right? It's <laughs> over. And that's, I think people would have been happy with it. They didn't come out and say well, that. Well, I think, I think what they did say is that they are looking at strategic options, right? So I think people got excited, like, oh, they might sell it. And then, you know, analysts are like, oh, you're yep. going to sell it this quarter. You're going to sell this. And, and that, that's when he was kind of like, okay, look, like, we've told you what we're going to tell you. We, we can't say anymore. All right. Allison Williams, Shanali Basak, uh, giving us a little bit of a roundtable here on all things Wall Street. ETFs, Matt. Is that okay with you? Love Absolutely. E- love I love ETFs. I, know I have do. a whole show dedicated to ETFs on Tuesdays. No, on Mondays at 1 p.m. Wall Street time. Yasmin yeah. Daya Bilger joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's head of ETFs and managing director at Engine Number One. Uh, Yasmin, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We appreciate you coming in. Just give me the 30-second call on what what do you guys do at Engine Number 1? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Engine Number 1 is an investment firm, and we're focused on identifying and investing in large-scale transformational themes. We're best known by many investors for our activist campaign where we got three people on the board of directors at ExxonMobil. And I think that campaign sort of shows two things of how we focus. Number one... We come at some of these questions around, for example, climate change and environmental issues from the lens of an investor. What is additive to shareholder value for a company over time? Not ideology or morality of climate change, for example. And secondly, we're active owners. We work closely with the companies in our portfolio to think about where are there things that they can do to you know, be more accountable to their plans or accelerate their plans. Have you ever met Vivek Ramaswamy? I have not personally, no. Okay, so he's this drive guy. Yeah. I think he's running Drill. for president, right? He's running for president. Um, but he uh, will tell you, or he tells us, that he's not anti-ESG. He just wants to maximize profits. And I th- had thought of engine number one as being an ESG play, but you're saying that's not the case. 
Absolutely not. In fact, I think this is actually one of the hard parts of the market is this terminology around ESG. So maybe I can spend a second on that and then I'll talk about us. ESG investing predominantly is about trying to rate companies and rank companies. And so rating them by environmental criteria or social criteria and really ultimately saying what's the best company in the portfolio based on that criteria and what's the worst. The problem with that is, number one, all of that is very subjective. What's good to me may not be good to you. And secondly, that whole process is completely delinked from performance. None of that involves how does this actually relate to a company's you know, long-term prospects and value creation. We're really looking for where there is an intersection between criteria in these spaces and shareholder value. So we're absolutely looking at this in the investment from the investment lens. And our goal is ultimately long-term investment performance for investors. All right. So I know, uh, Yasmin, you guys focus on a lot of thematic work in your ETFs. And we were just talking about supply chain. Talk to us about how, what are some of the, the themes you guys are working on with your ETF business? Yeah, I think chain. theme-based investing is very interesting. And you know, from our perspective, one of the most interesting themes right now is the relocalization of supply chains to North America. Now, to talk about where is this investment going, you actually kind of have to spend a little time on where it's been, which is that for the past 40 years, companies have really been focused primarily and almost exclusively in their supply chains around financial efficiency. So yep. moving huge parts of their supply chains to lower cost regions, eliminating redundancies in supply chains, which um, the best way to see this is just look at U.S. manufacturing. Over that 40-year period of time I was just talking about, US lost, uh, the U.S. lost 7 million manufacturing jobs, so enormous in magnitude. But it actually left companies very exposed to a lot of, I'd say, unintended consequences. Ultimately, supply chains were proven to be very fragile. So the big trend right now is bringing back parts of supply chains to help create more resilient supply chains. And we think there's but, a lot of investment opportunity yeah. around but that. But does it make sense? I mean, reshoring is the you know popular term. Does it make sense to bring them back to the U.S.? Because we still have high labor costs, right? Or um, does it make sense to move away from com- countries with whom we may have uh, you know, our differences, but bring them to places like Mexico where they have much lower. I mean, this is the old story. When I was a kid yeah. in college, we studied maquilladoras in Mexico, and that was a bad thing back then. But now bringing a company back and putting it, its production in Mexico is a good thing. Yeah, it's a really good question. So first of all, the cost differentials and labor advantages between the U.S. and China, for example, have narrowed. And in fact, it's lower cost to produce certain goods in Mexico now, to mm. your point. So the opportunity is really broadly North America, I would say, in a big way. Um, so that's point one. Point two, automation and innovation is going to be an important part of this because you're absolutely right. There was a reason why many parts and all parts, frankly, of supply chains were put abroad. It was cost. So when bringing certain parts back, you have to think about, is there a way to actually make your manufacturing processes, your manufacturing factories more efficient in the way they operate to help combat that cost differential? And that's that's one of the big areas we're actually investing around. Are there also – I mean, you don't care about um, climate change on on a moral ground, but if what you're doing happens to be better for the climate, um, doesn't that – 
please your investors? I mean, we, we spend our time understanding how these issue areas impact broader stakeholders because it's an important under, part of understanding risk for companies. And certainly the relocalization of supply chains to, somewhere, to North America should actually lower emissions over time, just given the regulatory standards we have around environmental standards in the U.S. I'd also say it's going to be hugely impactful for job creation in the U.S., particularly in the manufacturing sector. And we spent a lot of time looking at when the local plant is built, what does that actually do in terms of you know, the types of jobs that are brought back, the wages of those jobs, and I think importantly, the multiplier effect of that, you know, the extra jobs that are created indirectly around that. And so I think that will actually be a huge, a hugely important impact. By the way, I'm not sure how much you're focused on this uh, because that's, I guess, a longer term, right, um, bringing these – uh, production facilities back, and those jobs will be created over the next years, not months. But is it inflationary? It certainly can be. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the big theses across our whole broader. I mean, we're focused on the reindustrialization. I would say about North America, and implicit in that is an inflationary pressure. Yes. Uh, another big theme I know you guys spend a lot of time on at Engine Number One is energy. What are some, what are some of the plays, and where where are you seeing some of the flows go? Yeah, absolutely. So. Just to say up front, the energy transformation, as we call it, um, is one of the biggest investment opportunities that sits in front of us. By some estimates, it's going to take three to five trillion dollars of investment per year to decarbonize our economy. So we're talking about massive investment dollars flowing into the space. We have a very different point of view than most classic climate strategies. A classic climate strategy would be built in a way where it's if you don't like it, you don't own it. So you avoid the largest um, emitters, the largest companies and sectors. From our perspective, some of the biggest investment opportunities are places like agriculture, transportation, energy. Basically, 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from those three segments. That's the heart of the energy transition. So where we spend our time is across those value chains and just looking for opportunity in those spaces, which you know most, most places would be just trying to minimize your emissions in your portfolio today by investing in sort of younger green technology solutions. What do you think about those younger green technology? Are they just not um, ready to generate profit or? Oh, it's an and, not an or. I mean, that, but that's, the, that's I think, the, the bigger thing here is just widening the aperture of where you see the opportunity. A good example of this would be transportation, just to talk about the whole system altogether. When most people think about what's the opportunity in the energy tran- transition for transportation, they'll say electric vehicles. And they'll own the companies that are the leaders, leading automakers in electric vehicles. But there's so much more to the investment approach that you have to think about. For example, metals are an important component of batteries, which are obviously going to be an you know, important part of being all electric. Mining equipment is needed to get those metals out of the ground. Another type of company you can invest around. And then transportation. How are you going to move all those inputs around? So we just define the opportunity a lot broader than I would say most investors do, who I think see it more from one sort of sector level lens. Wow. I'm learning a lot here. So where are the where do you see the flows in that in the energy space? Where do you see the flows going the most? Are people just looking to get the, the latest technology or can you get them to think bigger picture? Yeah, and, the, and the metals, by the way. We just had yeah, a big a Business point. Week yep. piece uh, that Ford, among others, is sourcing aluminum from mines that are Brazil. allegedly polluting you know, whole communities in the Amazon. Oh, these are complex, complex topics, which is why I think this is 100% the space for active management. It is very difficult to just 
kind of set it and forget it through an index-based approach. I think theme-based investing broadly is actually going to have a a real kind of tailwind to it because if you think about right now, investors have to be hunting for differentiated sources of growth in their portfolio beyond what worked for them for the last 10, 15 years, which is just let me go to the lowest cost market cap portfolio I can. And so I think some of these themes, but particularly active managers who can play it in a really dynamic way, it's going to be very interesting for investors as they build portfolios. I think you've got one of the best seats on Wall Street, which is having a title head of ETFs anywhere. The growth in ETFs it's is pretty unbelievable. amazing. Unbelievable. I mean, it's just and you know, so we can do a whole other discussion just on the ETF space and the funds. Well, but what there, you but guys are doing is unique inside in, that yes. space. Yes. So, I mean, my favorite thing about ETFs is it's both growing and evolving. I mean, yep. it is a huge source of growth, but also if you look under the hood. The number of strategies that are coming out and the types of dynamic investments you can now access yep. is so much wider than it was just five, ten years it's ago. It's amazing. Good stuff. And I learned a lot today, Yasmin. Thank you so much for coming in. Uh, Yasmin Dahlia Bilger, head of ETFs, managing director at Engine Number One. A very smart discussion there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.